Yeah, we're ready to go. All right, let's open our Bibles this evening to Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. Leviticus 1, 1. And we're going to launch off into this amazing tour of Leviticus, all 27 chapters of it. We're going to have a have a, a lot of fun going through here. Uh, we'll actually get to the part about bodily discharges and everything one of these days. Uh, <laughs> can hardly wait to... Hardly wait, yeah. <laughs> get that done. We'll see how many red faces go through that, including mine. So, <laughs> anyway. All right, before we begin, let's just take a moment for prayer to prepare ourselves to start this new book. Let us pray. Father, thank you again for this day, your mercy and love and grace. We thank you for your blessings and for your test. And Father, we just pray tonight you'd be with us as we open up your word, that you would nourish our souls with this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Leviticus 1 is the burnt offering. You can, we'll be able to see it as we go through, but chapter 1 is the burnt offering, 2 is the gift offering, 3 is the peace offering, 4 and 5 is the sin and trespass offering. So we'll get a good picture of the offerings. We'll try to notice the similarities, notice the differences, uh, as, as we should when we're trying to understand what the Scripture says. And um, this chapter's got really three paragraphs to it. Uh, The first one is about the bull, and the second one is about the ram, and the third one is about the birds. And we actually have some some, uh, options here, as we will see. Uh, We're going to see what the the burnt offering is all about. There's uh, three little tags that we find to go with each one of these offerings that tell us what the burnt offering is about. So we'll just let the Scripture speak, compare Scripture with Scripture, and um, hopefully understand it better. It says, Then the Lord called to Moses, and he spoke to him from the tent of the meeting, saying... All right, so try to get this picture in your head. The Lord spoke to Moses from the tent of the meeting, and he called out. That means he was inside the tabernacle. Now, what happened? He, He went in, the Shekinah glory went in, and took its presence over the tabernacle. So... Uh, or into the, the Holy of Holies. So from out, from behind that curtain out here, you, you hear this voice that went, Moses. And um, here he is. He's right, residing there, and it's time to give Moses some new instruction. In verse 2, he says, speak. Now this is the command, calimperative of Devar that's used here. This is the normal word for speak. We find it. I don't know, thousands of times. It's a Hebrew 101 verb. Uh, And it says, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When? Now, that's English. This uh, particular word actually means if. Uh, When they translated it, when, um, they just did. They felt like they had the license to do that. If any uh, man of you brings an offering... Now, the offerings are the word korban, Q-O-R-B-A-N. If anyone brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. So he's basically saying that you have an offering here. They're supposed to come from cattle or they're supposed to come from sheep. The herd or the flock is primarily what that's referring to. 
So there are options concerning what type of animal to bring. So all of this in chapter 1 is a burnt offering, but it can be a number of different kinds of animals. And uh, it's teaching a very important point, as we'll see as we go through this chapter. And that important point is, it's not your wealth that's going to that's gonna save you. It's not going to do it. If you can bring a bull, bring a bull. If all you can bring is a, is a pigeon, bring a pigeon. Whatever you get, bring that. And here's the picture of the offering. And these are voluntary offerings. These first three offerings are all voluntary. The last two are mandatory teaching that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's some volitional decisions involved before you get ready to bring an offering. So he says, tell this to the sons of Israel. And uh, it doesn't mean that Moses is the only one hearing this voice. But it does mean that he is speaking directly to Moses. And I suspect Aaron and his sons are standing there and maybe some other... uh, leaders of the various tribes and they're they're hearing this voice as well now verse 3 says if his offering is a burnt offering the burnt offering I, uh, Jordan put this up here so I could scribble out some Hebrew on it but this is pretty simple Hebrew so I think I'll spare you uh, writing that an Ola Korban is the burnt offering uh, korban is the word for offering. Ola means it goes up and is burned. So it's burned up. From the herd, he shall offer it a male. Now, does God view gender as important? Just a simple question. We find it all the way through the Bible. In fact, if you want to understand uh, any literature whatsoever, you have to pay attention to what kind of pronouns are used. Because... Whenever you have a noun and then it is picked up in the noun and you have a proper name, it'll say he or she to denote whether that is a male or a female. So gender is important to God. I would think so since male and female he created them. Uh, it would seem that, that God has made the distinction and, and only arrogant people would try to change any of that. Now, <clears throat> he says without defect... I love this, or I'll put this word up for you. I like this word. This is the word tamim. This is a T. T A M I Y M. Tamim. Now, tamim is a really neat word because it is used 91 times. First time we see it used, it's used to describe Noah. In Genesis 6:9, the next time we see it, it was it was it was instructions to Abraham, and said, "This is what you're supposed to become," which is a a word that means without defect, blameless. That's what it means. So this male, when you brought it there, couldn't have a leg missing. It didn't have splotches where it was not supposed to have splotches. There were things that that this animal was to be as perfect as possible. So you had to pay attention to it. You had to watch it. You had to observe it. You couldn't bring an animal that would gone crazy and had rabies or anything like that. That would that would obviously be uh, bad. It was also used, Tamim, to describe the first Passover lamb in Exodus 12:5, where they 
slaughtered the lamb, put the blood on the on the doorpost. And so it is used to describe that which is perfect. Using it for Noah, <coughs> too, with, with the other words used to describe Noah, it also included the fact that he was genetically perfect. So Noah was perfect in his ways. He'd not been infiltrated by the angels, the angelic infiltration of Genesis 6. So Noah was qualified to go through and carry on the line of humanity, which would eventually bring about the promised seed of the woman, the birth of, of the Messiah. So he says, without defect, he shall offer it. This, uh, the Hebrew word is a, uh, well, it's the word karav that's used. It's a hifil imperfect. The hifil is a causative, so it says that if this person brings an offering, he shall cause to offer it. Uh, and the uh, third masculine singular on this with an imperative is what they call a jussive. We don't have anything like it in the English language. We have a cohortative and a jussive in the Greek and the Hebrew. The cohortative is a first-person command. The jussive is a third-person command. All we have in the English are second-person commands. So we don't have any, we just say, let him do it, but we have to realize it has the force of a command as though it says, you do it. The same same type of, of uh, meaning and emphasis beside it. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meaning. Let's see, anywhere we hear about doors besides the singing group of the 60s? Seemed like, didn't Jesus say he was the door into the sheepfold? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone opens, I'll come in and dine with him. The doorway of the tent of the meeting. That he may be accepted before the Lord. And this is Ratzon, third use, word meaning accepted, of 56 times that this word is used. And it means acceptable. It says literally um, for acceptance before the face of the Lord. That's literally what the uh, the way the Hebrew is arranged. Uh, for acceptance before the face of the Lord. So he shall bring it to the doorway. Priest will be there. Everybody's inspecting this animal to be sure that it is qualified. And uh, it has to be presented before the Lord. It's not a good thing to try and offer a, a, a bum animal to the Lord. It's just not a not a good thing. Now, notice the offering is voluntary. But, if one chooses to make it, then certain requirements follow. So, you can decide you want to bring the offering if you live back in the age of Israel. But once you got there, there were requirements that had to be followed. And that's, that's important. It was up to you to bring it, but if you brought it, you had to do it right. Now, the two sons of Aaron didn't quite get that whenever they brought the strange fire the first day of the offerings. We're going to read about that in Leviticus 10 when we, when we get there. There were certain things that had to be done. Now, the offering is to be without any blemish, denoting the required perfection of the substitute. Yeah. This is a burnt offering. This is, this is not for sin. It is to, it is to show a substitute. Okay, that's what this one is. And um, the, the, the substitute 
that which took our place to pay for sins had to be perfect. And that's what this is offerings about. Uh, it was to be publicly presented at a specific location. Okay, so he says, bring it to the doorway of the tent of the meeting. Now, the doorway, we have a doorway that goes into the outer court, if you remember the tabernacle. Okay, and where did he bring that to? Here's the outer tabernacle. They went through this screen here. They went through this opening. Right in front of them was the uh, bronze altar. And that's where they were to bring it because that's where the animal was to be offered. But it was also right behind it, the bronze laver and then the tabernacle proper. It was to bring it here and get it inspected as to, as to whether or not it was an acceptable offering or not. So it's a pretty elaborate thing. Uh, this was not a you know, a 20-minute deal. If, if you showed up with an offering, this was this took hours uh, to complete. I'm sure they got better at it. In fact, we uh, I didn't see it happen, but we bought a couple of cows for uh, uh, Nigeria one time. And uh, I think Bob Thompson was over there, maybe Charlie, whatever. And anyway, they decided they were going to butcher the, butcher the cows and send pieces of the cow back with different pastors. So uh, it took them, I think they said less than an hour to butcher that cow because they'd done it many, many, many times. And so maybe they were able to get it done a little faster than you and I might be able to, to do it. Now, publicly presented a specific location when they wanted to bring this. They weren't supposed to make their own altar somewhere else outside of the tabernacle or anything else. So if they chose to do this, they had to be specific location, specific type of animal, and they had to, to make the offering. And notice the Lord had the final say in the offering's acceptability. Okay, now, did he communicate to them? Well, they have this thing, remember, that went in the breastplate of the high priest called the Urim and Thummim? And I don't know if that was consulted. I don't recall any passage that says it was ever consulted with an offering. But if an offering was questionable, it's a simple answer, yes or no, whether or not it's acceptable to the Lord or not acceptable to the Lord. So uh, sometimes we forget about things that, that uh, gets installed and it establishes a context. And uh, in establishing the context, we forget about them as we read on through and forget that these things are still operational. And that's the Urim and Thummim is something that is already operational. So they can consult it. And uh, we don't find where they consult it very often written down in Scripture. But it could have been a daily thing where they went to the high priest. And what do we do here? And here's the answer that, that they get. Now, verse 4 says, And he shall lay his hand... On the head of the burn offering. Now see the, the he there? That he is the offeror. It's not the priest. On this offering it's the offeror. So he shall lay his hand on the head of the burn offering. That it may be accepted. That's ratzah. That's translated correctly. For him to make a covering on his behalf. Atonement is the word for covering. So he's telling us right there that this sacrifice is not going to take away sins. 
See, right here, when Moses is getting the instructions, with the wording that is being used here and the instructions to Moses, this offering is not going to take away sins. It's going to cover them. Okay, that's what it's going to do, and that's why it's called atonement. So the offer was to lay his hand on the offering, denoting the imputation of sins to the sacrifice. And this was a type to show that sins were covered until the Messiah would take them away. Hebrews 10, and we do have the benefit of looking uh, back um, to see what, uh, what the things really meant. I think that um, they understood a whole lot more than we give them credit for. Uh, you can you can find that to be just read the book of Job and somehow Job knew all about his redeemer and at the last he's going to take his stand and all that and everybody's going well that hadn't been revealed yet well obviously it had <laughs> you know the question is where and how and all that those are questions we probably won't get answered till eternity but Hebrews 10 is is a, a great place to go to to get interpretation of some of this work. The bull was an acceptable substitute at this time in history to cover sins that had been committed. Okay, So this burn offering is about how they were going to be done. So it's about a innocent substitute. Okay, That's what we've gleaned so far that is going to cover the, the offerer. Now in verse 5 it says, And he shall slay the young bull... He is the offeror. See, the priests are involved here, but he is the guy making the offering. That The pronouns haven't changed. The priests haven't been introduced. It hasn't say you're going to, you know, hand the knife to the priest right now, and you're going to back off and watch. It says when you offer this burnt offering, you put your hand on the head of the sacrifice and cut its throat. He is the, is the offeror, which is a picture of the fact We've all sinned, and we all need a Savior. And, and yeah, he's the innocent sacrifice is not for everybody else in the nation of Israel. It's for me whenever they, when they bring that. Now, <clears throat> he shall slay the young bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons. So the preacher, priests are watching, and we're able to glean that they're there to watch, they're there to instruct, they're there to be sure that things are done correctly. Uh, the priest shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around the altar that is the doorway of the tent of the meeting. Okay, so the offeror kills the animal, priests collect the blood, and they sprinkle it around as a picture of, of atonement. So the offerer is required to slay the bull, denoting the fact his own sins were responsible for its death. Imputation, hand on the head, his own sins were responsible for the death of this innocent animal. The priests were then to intercede and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice. They were to act on behalf of the high priest, who is a picture of the great high priest. So the high priest of Israel, it's pretty clear from Hebrews 5 through 9, that the high priest of Israel was a picture of the great high priest, which we know is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this sprinkling of blood did not save, but rather denoted the Savior. Okay, And it shows with the sprinkling of blood the, the fact that there's a whole lot of extra blood, but not everybody will avail themselves. There would have been plenty to go around. But, but 
Not everybody will avail themselves of this sacrifice. Christ is our mediator, the one in the middle. This is where the priest takes it and intercedes. Christ is the mesites, is the word for mediator. He's the one, the man in the middle. Uh, interesting that he was on the middle cross, isn't it? Located in the middle. Several places, just neat little symbol put there. Here he is on the middle cross. He is the mediator between God and man, equal with both. That's why he's qualified to be the mediator. Hebrews 9.13, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. See how close that is, the connections? And for this reason, he's the mediator of a new covenant. In order that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal of an eternal inheritance. So he took our place to provide the real salvation. And all these offerings were designed to show there would be an innocent substitute. And if they put two and two together, i.e. put scripture together, there would be the promised seed of the woman who would be the innocent sacrifice. Now, his sprinkled blood is the best. Another place that's used in Hebrews chapter 12 because it's again telling us that the blood of bulls and goats are just typology. typology. They're symbols. They're shadows. They are not the real thing. And it says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. I mean, this this just connected us back to pre-flood time. Better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking. So, what what is the, the blood, if you will, that makes the difference? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Blood is a picture of his spiritual death on the cross, but he also literally shed his blood. And so we'll deal with that a little bit before we get through here tonight because man has two problems. Two problems. Spiritual death, physical death. Where do problems come from? In the day you eat of it, Adam, dying you shall die. Dying spiritually, you're going to die physically. By committing that sin, he he got a sin nature that he passed on to every member of the human race. So not only are personal sins taken care of, but the sin nature as well. And that Paul brings out in Romans 3, 4, and 5. It's frequently a mystery there, but it's it's also quite clear. When he, when he died, he died twice because we had two problems. Now... <laughs> The work of the offer is not finished. He says he shall then skin the burnt offering. Now, I think you better have been running some laps around the compound here before you bring one of these offerings. If you bring a bull, he, the offer or, shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. It's a pretty good chore. 
take the skin off of the animal. Now, interestingly enough, the officiating priest got to keep the skin for himself. Leviticus 7, verse 8. And out of that, they would make clothes for themselves and their family and things like that. And the offerer needs to appreciate and provide for those who serve the Lord. So all of this offering is going to be burnt up. That's why it's called a burnt offering. They don't get to eat any of it. It's just going to be cooked until it is done. Kind of like the, uh, of course this wouldn't have worked in the age of Israel, but my daughter's wedding, they put a pig in the ground to cook it and uh, cooked it and cooked it and cooked it some more and got ready. They dug it up for the uh, wedding party and it was still not done. (laughs) And so then they (laughs) went and got 40 bags of charcoal or whatever it was. They'd already gone through a rick of wood trying to cook this stupid pig. (laughs) Went and got a whole bunch more charcoal. Lit the charcoal up. Put the pig back in the ground. And then the groomsman forgot about it. (laughs) When they dug that stupid pig up the next day, it was was tan skin in the leather, man. There was not a piece of that two or three hundred pound pig that was left to be found that was that was edible and all you could do is laugh about it i mean it was a they'd raised it they'd raised this thing they'd fed it they'd fattened it they'd prepared it they did everything right and then the cook went haywire (laughs) so anyway verse seven and the sons of aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire So here the priests start getting involved in it. But up to this time, with the exception of the sprinkling, the person that brought the offering was doing it. So the priests were both workers and observers at this point in time, in some sense like the angels. See, aren't they all ministering spirits sent out to help those uh, to inherit salvation? Hmm. In that sense, that's kind of a picture. An angel's a messenger. So they're like messengers from God. Our great high priest offered himself, and I I don't think you have Trinity Bible Church after that. That's a copy and paste that went awry, but um, I do. Our great high priest offered himself, Hebrews 5, verses 7 and 8, and says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. That is the the... John 17, high priestly prayer, and he was heard because of his piety. Here's the humanity of Christ, you know, saying, glorify me with you like with the glory we had uh, back before anything came into existence. And it says, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. After the animal was slaughtered and prepared, it was exposed to the fire of judgment. And this picture is the Lord offering himself to pay for the sins of the world. Yeah. They, they t- took the skin off, cut it in pieces, and burned the rest of it up. Mm-mm. Skin went to the priest. And I guess that was that was to you know payment in part uh, for because the priest by the time this is all done they're 
they're involved in this because who gets to build the fire and keep it going? <laughs> the, the priest. So um, Then Aaron's sons, verse 8, the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the suet, that's the fat, over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Okay, So the priest's role was to instruct the offeror concerning the proper way to offer the sacrifice. So they were to know how to do this. So you're finding some important things about priests here. That's why this book has got the title Leviticus. Ikas on the end of a Greek word means of or pertaining to. And Levi on the front, of or pertaining to Levi is what the, what the book is about. So what is their role as priests? Now notice that priests were to follow the rules themselves and to instruct others. So the priest had to know what needed to be done. The offerer would not know automatically when they brought this bull in to be done. And the priest had to say, this is what's going to happen. So the priests were teachers. That was one of the main things that they did. They were teachers of the law. How were things supposed to be done? In a lot of ways, they, were, they, were, they weren't the sole enforcers of the law. But they were kind of a uh, judiciary, if you will. So the priests were, were that's, that was what their role was. They had enforcers of the law that were heads over ten families and all that when Moses set up the 70 elders over Israel and, and divided, it, divided it on down. So now verse 9, its entrails, however, and its legs he shall wash with water. Huh? So he chops this bull up, pulls the guts out, and then he supposed to clean all this up and the priest shall offer up and smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord and that soothing aroma is what we're going to see with the next set of offerings and the last set of offerings a soothing aroma denotes propitiation so this is the picture of the fact that the Offering of Messiah totally and completely propitiated God the Father concerning his righteousness and justice. It satisfied his righteousness and justice. So here is the picture, I, I think, portrayed beautifully and clearly through this offering. Now the cleaning of the entrails denotes that even the inner man needed cleansing due to the sin nature. Okay, <clears throat> Jesus, of course... <laughs> He was perfect inside and out. He didn't have that. So they didn't need to pull his insides and do all that. But what it's saying is that he's imputed sins to the, uh, to the animal. And it's saying the sins go all the way deep into the innermost core of its being. So take the guts out. Clean them all out. The picture that that sin nature is going to. It's taken, being taken care of. Christ dealt with a curse, dying you shall die, by dying spiritually to pay for personal sins and physically to pay for the sin nature. That's my understanding of it. Because when he died spiritually, <clears throat> that's, that's personal sins, but the sin nature brought with it physical death. So there's a problem of spiritual death and a problem of physical death. And oftentimes people don't talk about how he dealt with the problem of of physical death and that that I believe was was done by this uh, 
dying you shall die. And he died physically. Because when he rose again, he rose spiritually from the dead. And then three days later, he rose physically from the dead. And I believe that's the, the ultimate conquering of all sin. Anywhere there's sin, it was all taken care of and, and paid for. So even if it was something that came from the outside in, like personal sin, what about the sin that comes from the inside out that, that Paul wrote about in Romans 3 and 4 is taken care of too. So sin from the inside out is covered. Sin from the outside in is covered. <clears throat> the soothing aroma denoted the fact that the righteousness and justice of the Father had been satisfied. And this satisfaction is known as propitiation. It is a key element of theology. Uh, you study, go through the different areas of systematic theology, and I understand Kelvin and George taught about uh, theology proper. I think George taught theology proper. And that's a study of the Father, which we gets another name as paterology, which it, that name never really caught on a whole lot, but it's still the study of God the Father. And as you start studying systematic theology, and you get to looking at the Father and the Son, the Son satisfied the Father's righteousness and justice, which was also His righteousness and justice. So, uh, Christ was the reality of this sacrifice. Okay? Romans 3.23 <laughs> For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift, justified as declared righteous, as a gift, charisma. People ask you if you're charismatic. You can say yes. Really mess with their head because it took a, took a secular definition that is not a biblical definition. If you're a believer, you're charismatic. Isn't that weird? Because you are saved by grace, and that's the word charis. You have received a grace gift from God. So, yes, do I speak in tongues? No. But I'm charismatic, as we all are. I got in trouble not long after I got here for saying that. In trouble means there was a lot more explanation that was required than I, I meant to get into. Anyway, it says, Whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Now, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. That's atonement. That's the covering. He says, I'll take care of it later, but here's a big pile of, of sin that is covered up like with the tarp, and it's still there. And he said, when the, when the Lord came on the cross, he took that as away as an issue. He says, For the demonstration I say of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now that's a really clear explanation of propitiation. That's what it's about. The Father's righteousness and justice had to be satisfied. Jesus took care of it. So if you believe in Jesus, you, you have been declared righteous. This sacrifice permitted him to display mercy to sinners. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, he had to be, the Lord had to be made, like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, 
so as to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now see, the, the high priest of Israel officiated over these offerings. But the great high priest was the offering. And they missed that. Christ's sacrifice covered the sins of the entire world. I love this passage. I've had multiple arguments with Calvinists who believe that there is a limited atonement only for the elect who were declared that in, in uh, predestined and eternity past and all that other argument that they make. And First uh, John 2, though, is a verse that, they, that is difficult to argue with, especially uh, grammatically. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you might not sin. But some people find out that, hey, my sins are all paid for. I can do anything I want. And that's part of what First John was written about for the Gnostics who believe that very thing. And it says, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. We've got a defense attorney with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous, in case you didn't. I love what John inserts there because he's very simple. Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the entire world. Then the word whole or all or entire, if the Greek word pos, translated all quite frequently, can be all of a particular subset. In other words, you could have a larger whole out there, and it can refer to all of this group of people or something like that. It's not the word used here. He went to another word, halos, is the word, and it looks it has a global concept to it. It means anything and everything. It's not a subset of another set. It is the set. And that's clearly what the word is means and is saying. Christ's sacrifice is the greatest display of the Father's love for us, from 1 John 4.10. See, you've just seen here the word propitiation everywhere it's used in the, in the New Testament. But what you've also seen is such a tremendous theological truth that we have. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. So God couldn't just dismiss his righteousness and justice. There had to be a payment. Now, the ram is verses 10 to 13. And here is a choice. You can, bring a, you can bring a bull or you can bring a ram. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or of the goats, you can bring a goat offering. Isn't that interesting? For a burn offering, it shall be a male without defect, just like with the bull. Okay, see the similarities there? Without defect. And he shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. Now, that catches your attention, doesn't it? Because why on the north side of the altar? <laughs> that sent me looking for things. Because I've been through this many times and I just went, where did the north come from? Coming up also is the east in the next set of offerings. And it says, before the Lord and Aaron's son, the priest shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. So the north side of the tabernacle is where the table of showbread was located. So you start looking up the word north and you let the scripture interpret itself for you. 
The north represented the awesome nature of the Almighty God. Job 37. Out of the north comes golden splendor, it says. Around God is awesome man majesty. The Almighty, we can't find him. He is exalted in power, and he will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any of those who are wise at heart, i.e., consider themselves wise at heart. So the north represented the awesome nature of the Almighty. It was also supposed to be the location of the city of the great king. Psalm 48. So here it says, take this offering of the lamb and present it before the, before the king of kings. When he moved him to the north side of the altar, this is what it's supposed to represent. It says, God is the Lord and greatly to be praised. In the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the entire earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. And even Satan recognized this location. Interesting. Genesis 14, 13. We all know the five I wills. We've heard them over and over and over again. But he says, You've said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. The supposed meeting place of the gods. So it had a special place whenever he sat on the north side of the tabernacle. So in this context, the symbolism seems to refer to the offering be presented directly before the face of the awesome God. So, did it have any symbolism? I, I think so. I could have, we probably could have gone into the gospel and the stars, found the constellations that are located up in the north, and I did not do that, but it wouldn't surprise me to find them have direct reference to the Almighty. Yeah. And just like the bull, verse 12, he shall then cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, its suet, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water. Again, similarities in the sacrifices. And the priest shall offer all of it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering. An offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Okay, so the first one was the bull, one from the herd. Next one was a sheep or a goat. And what does it say about both of them? They're both acceptable. A soothing aroma to the Lord. And there's still more choices. But if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or the young pigeons. Why? (laughs) Interesting thing about the difference between a dove and a pigeon is that doves migrated. They moved from place to place. So to catch one of those required a little bit of effort (laughs) to do that. Pigeons (coughs) are the ones that pretty well stay in place. They are born in a place. They stay in a place. That's pretty well what they do. And where do we see the dove earlier? The dove is the one that returned to Noah in the ark. Okay, so it's interesting because Jonah, 
Yonat means dove. Interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting thing. He went on a wandering uh, vagabond, ended up being a sacrifice and a fish in, in a way. Now, the volition, not the cost, was the issue in the burnt offering. These birds could be brought by anyone. Okay, They could go to a little effort and catch, catch a dove, or they could just get hold of a pigeon fairly easy. Been a lot easier to do. This portrays that everyone could partake of the substitute. Everybody had a substitute. Now, <clears throat> at one part of the ratification of the Abrahamic covenant, when you study Abraham, you find out there are three parts to the covenant. You find out there's innumerable descendants. You find out that there's geography. And you find out there's the line of the Messiah. Now, the innumerable descendants clause um, comes with this, this second part um, of the uh, ratification. Because God tested him. He put him, he said, this is what you get, but... To Abraham, it was a conditional covenant till he met the conditions. Then it became unconditional to the, those progeny after him. And so you find the covenant being ratified in three separate places. This is the second part of the ratification in Genesis 15. And Genesis 22 is the sacrifice of Isaac. And that's where the last part, the line of Messiah, is ratified and said that's now part of the, the Abrahamic covenant. Now, <clears throat> at one part of the ratification, Abram offered up a turtle dove and a young pigeon along with a heifer, a female goat, and a ram. All the, the heifer, the goat, and the ram were all three years old. Specifies those. And that's Genesis 15. So in a sense, if you were doing this, wouldn't this... Um, wouldn't this kind of take you back to thinking about the Abrahamic covenant? Because the Mosaic covenant was a portion of the Abrahamic covenant. If they really wanted to partake, they needed to follow the Mosaic covenant. But the Abrahamic covenant was promised to the nation, to the descendants of Abraham. But individually, it required obedience. And they often didn't see that. The dove required some effort to capture unless it had been domesticated as a pet which would make it more difficult to offer. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Here's Fluffy and Muffy, and you've raised them, and you've got your little dove and dovette <laughs> or whatever, and you're going to bring a, a, a dove that you've nurtured and raised. That's not an easy thing to do. In fact, farmers say, don't name the animals. You get too close to them. <laughs> you get way too close to them. And it gets harder to, to sacrifice them for foodstuffs. Verse 15, And the priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off its head, offer it up in smoke on the altar, and its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Why are we getting these different directions in here. I mean this now the east was a reminder of the wind that parted the Red Sea. Hmm. Came from a strong east wind. Which way were they headed? East? Where'd the wind come from the east and parted the 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 sea in front of them? And 
then after they got across, he's just stopped it, and, and the Egyptians got swept away. The opening of the outer court and the tabernacle was on the east side as well. How about Messiah coming from the east to establish his eternal kingdom? They've been looking for Messiah to come from the east for a long, long time. And these ashes denote the place of judgment. So this is a reminder of the promise that Christ would destroy all of his enemies. From Psalm 110, verse 1, a special priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And he will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. So here's this judgment that's been rendered on the innocent sacrifice, but it's a reminder somebody's going to end up in ashes if they don't accept their Messiah. And then he shall tear it by its wings, but shall not sever it. And the priest shall offer it up in the smoke on the altar of the wood that's on the fire. It's a burnt offering. An offer by offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. And that's the third time we've seen that phrase for these three different sets of offerings. So, <laughs> shall not sever it. I think that's just a picture of Messiah's body uh, would be broken. It is. This is my body that is broken for you. Rather than severing it, it didn't sever his deity and his humanity. It didn't do any of that. All three offerings are acceptable is the main point. The main point. So if you choose to bring an offering to thank God for the fact that he will be satisfied by the perfect substitute known as the Messiah, all three are acceptable. Bring whatever you choose. But once you decide to do it, you got to follow the instructions. This is the way it's supposed to be. And I, I see this as wealth is not an issue in salvation. Because obviously you go from a real expensive offering with the bull down to a, a, a dove that anybody can come up with. So wealth is not an issue in salvation. How does a rich man enter the kingdom of God? With great difficulty is what, it, what the Lord said. With great difficulty. Any questions, comments? Huh? Well, I, I uh, honestly wasn't looking forward to going through this. And the more I got into it, the more I enjoyed it. <laughs> so, yeah. it's. Uh, we'll see what else it's got to offer. And I, I know there will be some really exciting chapters as we as we go through it okay let's pray father thank you again for your blessings your test thank you for all that you've done for us thank you for your word and father we know that your message has has been the same from the beginning we know the gospel has is called eternal and father we know that from the beginning the innocent substitute was required to pay a debt that we were not able to pay Father, we thank you so much for sending your Son so that we through him might have eternal life and have an eternal home with you. We give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.